moved on from Joshua, we'll spend the next couple of weeks in Judges before Palm Sunday. <clears throat> we want to look at principles of how God works in, in us as we claim our lives and our souls for him entirely. Judges chapter 6, I'm going to read for us verses 11 through 17, but I'll refer to both sides of that passage. Uh, Judges 6, verse 11, the angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash, the Abiezrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. But sir, Gideon replied, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our fathers told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord's abandoned us and put us into the hand of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? But Lord, Gideon asked, how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh. And I'm the least in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you. And you will strike down all the Midianites together. Gideon replied, If now I found favor in your eyes, give me a sign that it's really you talking to me. <clears throat> you are, as I keep repeating, bigger on the inside than on the outside. Your soul is the biggest thing about you. The battles that you face on the outside, relationships, illness, finances, loneliness, provide you the opportunity to do the one thing necessary for claiming the insight for Christ. Trust and obey God. I say the one thing because there are two sides of the same precious coin. Only so can we bring our entire life under God's rule. But how do we go about doing that? How do we bring our souls under God's rule and in the process win the world for Christ? Because make no mistake about it, we'll never win the world or even our own families if we're not claiming our own souls for Christ. Are there ways that God prefers to work in us? Ways that we can watch for, principles that we can identify. There are and I'd like to share five of them with you this morning. But let me begin by summarizing the first ten verses of Judges 6 that we just skipped over. Because there we're going to find one of these principles <clears throat> regarding God's preferred way of working with us. <clears throat> Israel was in trouble. Again. This is the third of six major cycles and there's a whole bunch of minor cycles as well, but six major cycles in the book of Judges in which Israel turns away from God, gets into trouble, then turns back to God. But with each new cycle, they fall further and further away. And each time they come back, they remain a little more distant from God than they were the time before. Israel made trouble for themselves. And we're suffering the inevitable consequences. Inevitable because God warned them that if they failed to drive the enemies out of the promised land, this would happen. 
Instead of bringing the land under God's rule, they let adversaries remain who flouted God's authority, and that led to conflict and to grief. Same thing happens to us when we allow sins to remain in our life that flout God's rule. We come to grief in our relationships, our finances, our work, and on and on. Well, when Israel's situation got bad enough, when the pain and worry became almost constant, then people again began to, began to cry out to God. They probably thought they were making the first move toward him, that they were initiating contact and were now waiting for him to respond. But the reality is that God always acts first. He had been working among them before they even considered turning to him. They thought they were waiting for him and wondering why he was taking so long. But the truth is, he had all this time been waiting for them. The prophet Isaiah understood that when in chapter 30 he calls people to wait for God. He lets them in on a little secret. God has all along been waiting for them. Yet the Lord waits to be gracious to you. Blessed are all those who wait for him. You can take it as an inviolable law. God is already planning and acting in and around your life. He's up to something, and you didn't know it. God has plans that involve you and the people you know and the situations in which you find yourself right now. Now, here's where the problem comes. God's not the only one who has plans. We have plans, too. We want to marry that guy or girl who's going to make us happy. We want to be comfortable, have nice things, raise healthy kids, enjoy the admiration of our friends. We want to make enough money to retire early and vacation often and avoid pain and sickness and suffering. We have our plans, and we want God to adopt those plans. We want him to invest in our life plan. But he has plans of his own. He's directing worlds and saving souls and rescuing the perishing and banishing evil and restoring creation. And he wants us to invest in his life plan. We want him to invest in ours, and he wants us to invest in his. Here's what I've seen people do. They have a plan, but the plan is falling apart. Maybe an accident has followed it up. Or health concerns, relational problems, financial setbacks have threatened It's fulfillment. And so people start calling out on God. I don't see my plan coming to pass. God, they pray, though they might not use these words, come quickly to remove this thing that is ruining my plans. And when God doesn't come and do what they want, they give up on him. Or they decide he doesn't exist. But all the while, he's been saying to them, dearest, that's not the way it works. Come and take part in my plans, and everything will work out beautifully for you, more beautifully than you can now imagine. But they can't hear him. They can't see him. Their ears can only hear their own voices. They only have eyes for their own plans. They miss God at the very moment they're looking their hardest for him. Listen, the way out of your trouble is not by getting God in to invest in your life plan, but by investing in his. That's our first principle. God will speak to you if you'll listen to him with the intention of obeying. In fact, he's probably been speaking to you already. He will show you his plans if you will look away from your own for a moment. 
Now look at verse 11. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah. That made me wonder, what does an angel look like when he sits down? Is he clumsy doing that? I mean, is he unused to that? He came and he sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abiezrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. He had to thresh it in the wine press because the Midianites would come in at harvest time and take everything that was harvested. They'd let the Israelites thresh it, then they would take it away from them. So he's hiding. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Now, I find a second principle in this verse. The angel of the Lord, who in some way we don't fully understand, makes the Lord present to Gideon. In some way, is himself the Lord. Scholars call it a theophany. The angel of the Lord calls Gideon mighty warrior and tells him, this is verse 14, to go in strength and save Israel. But Gideon isn't buying it. He's not a mighty warrior, and he knows it. He's hiding in a wine press, for crying out loud. And when he looks at himself, he doesn't see strength. He sees weakness. Look at verse 15. My clan, he's part of the, what might be the smallest of all the tribes, and my clan is the weakest in the tribe, and I'm the least in my clan. Now, do you think he was exaggerating? Was he just making excuses because he didn't want to do what God wanted him to do? <clears throat> It's possible, but I think he was speaking the truth as he saw it. He knew himself. He knew all his fears and failures, all the times that he'd backed down, all the times he'd shied away from conflict. Gideon looked at his past and said, who are you kidding? I'm not a mighty warrior. But here's that second principle. God does not look at who you've been. He looks at at who you'll be. To him, the future is just as clear as the past. What he says about you, he says from his experience of the future, which is just as true, in fact, truer, than your experience of the past. If your experience of the past leads you to despair, his experience of the future leads you to hope. He sees the end from the beginning. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times. What is still to come? I say my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please, including with you and me. According to the Apostle Paul, God gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they were. He speaks the universe into being, out of nothing. He calls a farmer mighty warrior and he suddenly wins battles. He calls us son and daughter and that's what we become. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God, and that's what we are. We see what we've been. God sees what we'll be. Gideon was in the habit of looking in the rearview mirror. He's stuck in his past, in his family's weakness, which I suspect he despised, and in his own failures. If we get caught up in that, We're not going to accomplish much of anything. God wants us to look to his power in the present, knowing that will change the future. Now, there's another principle here we oughtn't overlook. The angel of the Lord tells Gideon that the Lord is with him. But Gideon, verse 13, asks, If the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our fathers told us about when they said, didn't God bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord's abandoned us and put us into the hand of Midian. 
Now, you can probably sympathize with him. What do you mean God's with us? I have cancer. Or my spouse has heart disease. I lost my job and then lost our home to foreclosure. My child is ruining his life and throwing away his future. How can you say God is with us? We have made the erroneous assumption that if God is with us, everything will be easy. We forget that we're in a battle. The confusion and pain can overwhelm us, and we can feel all alone. That happens to the best of us. It happens to the most godly of men and women. But here's the principle. This is number three. God is with you. If you belong to his son, God is with you. But until you're with him, you'll not know it. You want desperately to get God to be with you when, if you already belong to his son, he is with you. But you won't know that until you're with him. St. Augustine understood that. He said to God, you were within me, but I was outside myself. And from there, I sought you. In my weakness, I ran after the beauty of the things you made. You were with me, and I was not with you. If I don't believe that God is with me, unless he signs up for my team, uses his strength to achieve my goals, and make things turn out the way I want them. In other words, if I require God to seek first the kingdom of Shane and his comfort, then I'll miss God. But if I sign up for his team, use my strength to achieve his goals, and do my best to make things turn out the way he wants them, in other words, if I seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, then I'll know what it is to have God with me. And gloriously so. The Lord told Gideon in verse 12 that he was with him. Then again in verse 14, and yet again in verse 16. I'm with you, I'm with you, I'm with you. But Gideon had trouble believing that. He wasn't satisfied with the word of the Lord. He wanted a sign. Prove it, he says to God. But here's the problem with asking God for a sign. It'll never be enough. It'll never satisfy And God knows that. He knows that all the while you're asking, oh, God, give me a sign. He knows he can give it to you and won't make any difference. Now, God graciously did give Gideon a sign. You can read about it in verses 20 and 21. But here's the thing. It wasn't very long at all before Gideon was asking for another sign and then for another one. Signs lack the power to convince us. The conviction we need lies within us, not within a sign. And the power to activate that conviction is found in obedience. When the Jews came to Jesus and asked for a sign, do you remember what he said to them? He sighed deeply and said, why does this generation ask for a miraculous sign? I tell you the truth, no sign will be given to it. And then he left them, got into the boat and crossed the other side. He walked away. They asked for a sign, and they got a sign. Why not give them a sign? Because tomorrow, or the day after that, or next week, they would be in just as much doubt as they were before the sign, and a little more hardened in spirit. 
If a sign was all that people needed, he would have given it to them. If all America needed to turn to God was a sign, the heavens would look like Times Square. There would be signs flashing everywhere. But that simply doesn't work for us. And don't forget, Jesus did give the people of his day plenty of signs. John, John's gospel lists seven principal ones, but there were many others. And still people didn't believe. But what a sign can never do, obedience does. Obeying what God says to you, and that means getting active in doing his will, will convince you that he's with you like nothing else can. Some absolutely brilliant people have lost their faith. Bart Ehrman, the Princeton scholar, is a good example. Not because they needed a sign and didn't get it, but because experiencing God's presence as a reality requires more than thinking. It requires immersion in the activity of God. It's worth noting that once Gideon did obey God and went to save Israel from Midian, he never asked for another sign. All his doubts were removed. What a sign could never supply, obedience promptly provided. People want to wait until God gives them a sign before they make the risky decision to obey him. But you know what? It almost always works exactly the opposite way. Only after we make the decision to obey do we see a sign. Next principle from Gideon. This is number four. To have a rich experience of God, it's necessary to rid yourself of the idols that holds you back from following him. Without even realizing it, we can place our hopes in and build our lives around something other than God. Often it's something that our parents put their hopes in, and we learned it early. It might be money or popularity or politics or even something as vain as sports. And we don't put it this way, but we're serving other gods. Other powers, which is what the word gods originally meant. And we're afraid to give it up. I've gotten some satisfaction in my life out of this, and I don't want to let go of it. Before Gideon was ready to follow the Lord's call, he had to get rid of the other powers in which his family had trusted as long as he could remember. Look at verse 25. That same night the Lord said to him, Take the second bull from your father's herd. By the way, in scholarly circles, there's been question about what the second bull means. And for, nobody's ever found out exactly what that could mean, although there's been a lot of suggestions. Take the second bull from your father's herd, the one seven years old, tear down your father's altar to Baal, your father's altar, in his own property. Tear down your father's altar to Baal and cut down, that by the way is a play on words, the verb cut down or hack down, is part of Gideon's name. Gideon means hacker. Gideon was a 10th century B.C. hacker. <laughs> hack down the Asherah pole beside it. Now, notice that the altar and the idol that Gideon is told to tear down are on his father's property, and yet when he tears them down, he makes lots of people angry. Verses 29 and 30. They asked each other, who did this? When they carefully investigated, they were told Gideon, son of Joash, did it. 
the men of the town demanded of Joash, bring out your son. He must die because he's broken down Baal's altar and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Now, listen. When you get serious about removing idols from your life, other people will get upset. Your life, your idols, but they'll get upset because they're invested in your idolatry. If your idol has been your stock portfolio and you decide to tear that idol from your heart by selling your stock, you're going to cause your spouse and your children, and not to mention your broker, a lot of anxiety. They may get very angry. If your God has been success and you cast that idol down and stop working 70 hours a week, your boss may not be happy with you. She may even fire you. People will call you a fanatic. They'll say you've gone too far. But if you're going to be a mighty warrior who claims his or her entire life for God, you'll have to remove the idols. God must reign alone. Now, that's not enough. Before Gideon could succeed as a mighty warrior, he had to become a meaningful worshiper. We learn from Gideon it's not enough to remove the worship of false gods from our lives. We must replace it with the worship of the true God. Nature abhors a vacuum. In our culture, people have, for the last few years, spoken of a moral vacuum. But there's no such thing. Our society is not doing away with morals, with biblical morals, for example. It's replacing them. Sexual morality is as strong as it ever has been. But it's not the same morality that we knew. It's a different one. A moral vacuum is not possible, nor is a spiritual vacuum You can only cast out a false god by replacing it, either with the true god or another idol. Notice God's instructions to Gideon. After he hacked down the idol and the altar to the false god, he was to replace it, this is verse 26, with a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God on the top of this height. Using the wood of the Asherah pole that you cut down, offer the second bull as a burnt offering. Now that leads to That fifth principle, you must fill up the place the false God took in your life with service to the true one. Notice that God instructed Gideon to use the very thing he once worshipped, the wood of the Asherah pole, to serve in the worship of God. If the false God you worshipped was beauty or youth, the worship of the true God might well lead you to serve people who have no beauty or to serve the aged. If your false god was money, worship of the true God will probably involve sacrificing money to serve Christ, perhaps to help the poor, or to fund some ministry. If the false god you worshipped was power, now we call it by polite names like influence and leadership, but if it was power, the worship of the true God will almost certainly involve you serving others, perhaps even in menial ways. The thing to remember here is that you can't stop worshiping. You can only choose who or what you'll worship. The American intellectual uh, and novelist David Foster Wallace gave commencement speech at Kenyon College in 2005. A couple of years later, he took his own life. He was a young man. A couple of years later, he took his own life. This is what he told the graduates. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. Okay, this guy's not a Christian, as far as I know. 
And pretty much anything you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they're where you tap real meaning in life, then you'll never have enough. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you'll always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you'll die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power, you'll feel weak and afraid, and you'll need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out, and so on. No doubt he spoke from his own experience. You can't stop worshiping. You can only choose who or what you'll worship. All right, we've seen five principles from Judges 6 to help us understand how God works in our lives to reveal himself to us, to enable us to bring our whole selves under his control. Now, let me wrap this up with this. If you've been asking the question, is God with me, or why isn't God with me, and you're not getting an answer, let me suggest a different question. Am I with God? And don't take the answer for granted. What evidence is there that you're with God? What specific commands are you obeying? What calling are you following? How is your life different because you're with God? If you'll ask him to tell you what he's planned for you, with the intention of joining him in what he's doing, He will tell you. And as you get involved in God's plans, you won't need a sign. You will know that he's with you. In fact, getting involved in what he's doing is really the only way to know that he's with you. Now let me say one last thing. I said earlier that Gideon felt abandoned, felt alone. And I said that that happens to the most godly of people. And I meant that. It has happened to the most godly of people. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You're not alone in feeling alone. Jesus felt it too. In fact, he felt it precisely so that you need never be alone. That's the price of our salvation. But he didn't pay that price so that you could get God to join in on your plans, but so that you could join in on his. Now let's pray. God, speak to us what is on your heart, to us individually, about what's in our lives so that we can be all yours. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.